So we are in Jeremiah, and last week we finished chapter 13, and my lovely wife said that 14 and 15 are a unit, so we stopped there, and we'll pick it up at 14. And as I said on Shabbat, what we'll do next week, even though we're not done with Jeremiah, is we'll go ahead and start Esther, because I would like to get through the book of Esther before Purim. This is the last hurrah for Jeremiah. When we get done with Esther after Purim, we can either come back to this or we can go on with a new book, whichever you like. So, Jeremiah 14. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns, they find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are shamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, because there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the forest forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkey stands on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. One of the things that God says in uh, the Torah that is when he's displeased with his people, that one of the first things he does is turns off the rain. So he's done this, and this is obviously a description of a drought. One of the things that I think is interesting and disturbing is that the United States right now is undergoing a major drought. The Midwest has been dry. We've been dry. I think we've had an inch and a half of snow this winter so far, maybe something like that. They've had some up in the hills, but even so, it's not much. The Mississippi is so low that they are having trouble navigating. Texas has been in a drought for several years. Quite a number of farms and ranches have been foreclosed. The herds and flocks in the United States have been slaughtered because they can't feed them. So what's going to happen next year is the price of meat is going to go through the roof. Because of the Environmental Protection Agency, instead of feeding grain to our cattle, we are feeding it to our automobiles, and the EPA will not back off on that. And the other part of that is, I think somebody mentioned last time, in places in the world where they import most of their food, like Egypt and so forth, those people are starting to hurt. The price of tortillas in Mexico goes through the roof because there's no corn in the United States. We are in a a serious major drought, and as we read this portion of Jeremiah, I will suggest that there's probably some stuff in here for us. So I'm not out of verse 7. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. The essence of this is, we've screwed up, but we're still your people, and you need to do something. If you go back to Deuteronomy, just before the Song of Moses, this is one that I camp out on every year, so you've all heard this before, but it's good to hear again. I'm in Deuteronomy 31.16. This is the chapter in Deuteronomy before the Song of Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. So this is God speaking through Moses. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. 
and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. So what God is saying through Moses is, they're going to turn away from me. I'm going to bring calamity on the land. And they're going to whine and say, God, if you'd only been with us, none of this would have happened. That's exactly what's being said here in Jeremiah. We got a drought. We know it's because of our iniquities. But if you were here and doing your thing, we wouldn't be having this trouble. The only thing I can think of is the sort of standard thing is the guy that murders both of his parents and then pleads for mercy because he's an orphan. I mean, it's that kind of thing. If you weren't such a nasty guy, God, you'd give us some water anyway because we really need it. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord concerning this people. They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. So as he said back in Deuteronomy, chapter 31, 18, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. What he's predicting is this is all going to happen. They're going to call out to me and I'm not going to listen to them. And so that's what's actually happening here in Jeremiah. Verse 11. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So the word from God to the man of God, which is to say Jeremiah, is don't bother pleading for this people. It isn't going to do any good. Thirteen. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So what he's saying is the tame churchmen are assuring them that everything is going to be all right. And I will gently suggest to you that there's a whole lot of the body of Christ in this country where preachers are saying the same thing. They're speaking comforting words instead of words to wake people up and get them to change their attitude. Instead of saying, coming in here and and living in one kind of sin or another is a sin, they're saying, oh, there, 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 come on in. We're all inclusive and open and affirming. and, and, And open and affirming tends to just point to one kind of sin, which is basically homosexuality. Verse 14, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you in a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, Sword and famine shall not come upon this land, By sword and famine these prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out on the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. Several things going on here. 
God is saying that these people who are prophesying safety in my name are in fact not speaking for me. And what I will do to them is I will make sure that when sword and famine come, they're going to be the first ones hit. But the interesting thing is the people who listen to them are also going to go down. God holds them responsible. He expects the average lay person to be able to tell truth from falsity. What isn't said here is these people have been led astray. I'm going to cut them some slack because they got fooled by people who are speaking in my name. There's no slack being cut here. What he's saying by implication is you, 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 everybody is individually responsible for discerning whether the people who are teaching and preaching are saying the truth. One can infer from this that what these preachers who are preaching safety and comfort are preaching something that somebody wants to hear. This goes back to my temple has become a den of thieves, which is to say people run into it for safety, but they don't go there to repent. They simply go into that place because it's a hideout. And they think that if they go to the temple of the Lord of the tabernacle, they will be physically safe, but they're not doing that because they're returning to God and repenting. I think I mentioned this last time. Whenever we have a disaster in this country, 911, Hurricane Katrina, you know, shootouts at theaters and schools, you know, all those kinds of things, the churches jam up for about two weeks. And then it all goes away. And what I will suggest to you is that is a modern manifestation of people running to a hideout to escape the consequences of what's going on in society. They have not run there for repentance. They have run there simply for safety. Verse 17. You shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold those pierced by the sword. If I enter the city, behold the disease of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. The prophet and the priest who are plying their trade, plying their trade, in other words, they're going about like merchants, and their trade is the word of God, but they have no knowledge. Verse 19. Now this is Jeremiah talking back to God. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We look for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us, For your name's sake, do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nation that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Actually, I said that's Jeremiah. That may be Israel. So they're acknowledging their witness, and they are reminding God of their covenant. So what are they trying to do here? They're trying to channel Moses here. Because Moses, when God threatened to destroy the people, threw himself down on his face and says, you can't do this, otherwise the nations will say that you couldn't bring them out, you couldn't sustain them, and your name will be dragged through the mud. So you can't do this, God. 
What Israel here is trying to do is pull that same tactic, and God's not going to buy it. Chapter 15. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, Where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. Those who are for pestilence to pestilence. Those who are for the sword to the sword. Those who are for famine to famine. And those who are for captivity to captivity. The point here is, Even Moses and Samuel, who have a track record of success, reminding God of his covenant and getting mercy for his people when they sin, even those two men would not be able to save were they here right now. You have fallen so far and your iniquity is so great that you are going into the exile or you're going into disease and sword and so forth. Verse 3. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. And you may remember Manasseh went into idolatry. Hezekiah was a righteous king and his Son Manasseh was not. Verse 5. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. God is very, very merciful. And over the decades and the centuries, as Israel started to drift downhill, he kept doing the things that the covenant said he would do. He would send the Midianites, and the Midianites would invade him for a while. And they'd raise up a judge and get straightened out for a while, and then they'd go on, and then he'd have a drought. And he'd raise up another judge. So they kept falling into disrepair, and God kept relenting and sending the prophets and judges and so forth to pick him up, and he says, I'm tired. I'm not going to do it anymore. Verse 7, I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. Now, this goes with, I am weary of relenting. So I am weary of relenting. What I have done is, in the past, I winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people, and they did not turn from their ways. So the idea of all of the bad things that had happened to Israel over the centuries was to get their attention and turn them around and bring them back to the covenant and bring them back to relation. It didn't work. So God is saying, I'm done. Verse 8, I have made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. She who has borne seven. I believe that's an indicator of in that land and in that culture, and in fact in all lands and all culture except ours because we screwed it up, children are expected to take care of their parents when their parents are old. So the woman who has borne seven is, I would suggest, a metaphor for someone who should be secure in her old age. She's got seven sons to watch after her 
as she gets old so that she doesn't live in poverty. And so the idea of the one who was born seven is still in trouble is an indicator that even someone like that is going to have trouble, which is not someone you would normally expect to have trouble. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced, and the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. So back up in verse 8. I brought a destroyer against the mothers of young men, a destroyer at noonday. And then in nine and a half, her son went down while it was yet day. You see the parallel there. Verse 10. In the parenthetical notes in my translation, it indicates that this may be Jeremiah who is now speaking. Verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, Have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? What he's complaining about here is God picked him to be a prophet, and he picked him to be a prophet in a time when Israel was about to be sent into exile. So the only thing he's got to say is really gloomy stuff, and that's not popular. And he says, you know, I haven't borrowed money from anybody. Everybody hates me. And so he's sort of complaining to God, God, why did you pick me to be a prophet? I'm really unpopular because of what I've got to say. 13, your wealth and your treasures I will give a spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance take me not away. I know that for your sake I bear reproach. So a couple of chapters back, remember his kinsman in Anathoth were plotting against him. And God says, your kinsmen are plotting against me and don't listen to anything they say. Even if they say pleasant words, they're still plotting against you. And so what he's saying now is, Lord, you know, remember and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. So that I would imagine is probably referring to his kinsmen in Anathoth, among others. The king also had Jeremiah slapped around and thrown in the jug. So he is not having an easy life. Verse 16, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Now, notice the shift there. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. So this idea of eating the word of God shows up several places in scripture. And what Jeremiah said is, when I ate your words, they brought me joy and delight. And he said, I don't sit in the company of revelers. I didn't, didn't rejoice. In other words, I haven't been out partying in the honky-tonks. And then he says, I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. And I will take that to be the words in the Revelation where he eats it and it's sweet as honey on his tongue, but it brings bitterness to his stomach. So just extrapolating off that, Jeremiah has eaten the word of God and it initially was sweet and joyful. But as the meaning of it sinks in, 
especially with relationship to where Israel is now, it has become the source of bitter indignation to him. You don't have to buy that, but that's what it says to me. Verse 18, Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? And again, this is a talking, him talking to God. Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, I will restore you. You shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. What God is saying is hang in there and be faithful. I expect you to continue to speak the truth. And if you do, you will be my mouthpiece. And they will turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. So what I see this saying is, they'll come to you because you're speaking the word. You're not going to go to them, which is to say you're not going to tailor your message to be what they want to hear. You're going to be standing there speaking the truth, and the truth will be attractive. You don't have to modify the truth to get an audience. 20. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. So what he's saying is you're undergoing lots and lots of tribulation because you are speaking the word. But like a bronze wall that doesn't yield, the truth that you speak is going to be your defense and I am going to be your shield. And they'll beat themselves against the truth of your word, but they will not prevail. And they won't prevail over you either. Now, those are the two chapters I wanted to cover, but I want to now go to 29. And that's what we'll close off with, Jeremiah 29. This is the aftermath. 28 is actually worth reading, but I don't have time to go through it all. Basically, there's a prophet named Hananiah who is saying that this is all going to be turned around and within two years everything's going to be restored. And at the end of 28, God takes him out. He's a false prophet. Jeremiah says, you're a false prophet, you're a liar, and God takes him out to validate what Jeremiah says. So then we get to 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What's going on is the prophecies that Jeremiah has been prophesying have come to pass. The Babylonians have come down. So Judah's been destroyed. They've gone into exile under Nebuchadnezzar. In 28, you had this prophet Hananiah that's saying, it's all going to come back really quickly here. In Babylon, you have got other prophets that are saying, don't serve the king of Babylon. Get ready for rebellion. God is going to come and rescue us. He's going to bring us back to our land and all that kind of stuff. So that's what the situation is. So Jeremiah now sends them a letter. It said, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. Then when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said... The Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen, who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword. These are the ones that went down to Egypt, by the way. So the idea here is God has spoken to Jeremiah. And remember we've been talking about the nature of truth. How do you tell when something is true biblically? When something has served and done what it was expected to do over a long period of time, it is true. You only know that something is true by experience. A Greek knows that something is true by logical rules. Truth is a function of how you arrange words in Greek. That is not the case in Biblical Hebrew. Truth is a function of something that can be relied on, something that does what it says it will do, something that does what you expect it to do. Jeremiah, by prophesying in the name of the Lord all of the things that were going to come to pass on Judah, now they've come to pass. Nebuchadnezzar's come down, he swept them away, he sent them off into Babylon, Jeremiah has demonstrated that he is a true prophet. So when the false prophets arise in Babylon and Egypt and say, everything's going to be fine, we're all going home, Jeremiah, as a true prophet, is sending them a letter saying, no, that's not what's going to happen. Don't listen to these people, they're false. And the reason that you listen to Jeremiah and not to these other people is because he has a track record of being a true prophet. The deal in all of this is you can only tell what's true in hindsight. And once something has proven true, then the way you go forward into the future is you look upon the things that are proven true and you see what they say and you base your actions on things that have been proven true in the past. So Jeremiah is saying, you can believe what I say in the name of the Lord because I have proven myself to be a true prophet Therefore, you can take action on what I am saying now. And that's why the Bible has proven to be true, is because you can look at history, you can look at what the Word said, and you can see that the words are reliable. 
They are true. And because they're true, you can then move forward and act on that basis, knowing that what you're doing is on a foundation of truthfulness and not on wishful thinking or what somebody says that you want to hear or, or whatever. Jeremiah tells you how to figure out what truth is. And in here, God tells you that you're responsible for figuring out what truth is. Those two things are really important because if you're responsible and God does hold them responsible, then he has to give you a way to figure it out. The Bible is not written for supermen. If we're to figure out what the truth is, we're going to have to use the fallible minds that God gave us. That's all we have. Therefore, it must be possible. If God is going to hold you responsible for knowing the truth, it's got to be possible for you to figure it out. And what this little study we did in Jeremiah is, is Jeremiah's explanation of how to figure it out, how to decide what truth is. And also, as I say, the warning that it's important and you need to figure it out because God will hold you responsible for it. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.